Good evening. It's seven o'clock and time now for In Context with Patrick Boynes. Good evening. It's great to have you with us this evening and welcome once again to In Context on truthfm.uk. This is the radio show where we look at a passage from Scripture and where we'll always aim to look at things within their context. You can find us here on Internet Radio by going to truthfm.uk or on the truth.fm app, or maybe you're listening to this on a podcast. Well, however you got here, it's jolly good to have you with us once more. My name is Patrick. I am a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. He's my teacher, and I'm learning to follow him through learning his teaching as I travel the journey we call life. And we are on a journey on Monday evenings, traveling through the writings of Luke, stopping each step of the journey to spend a little time with those along the way. And our stop this evening, I suppose it must be said, is somewhat unusual. We're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture which to many might be one of those which is not seen as being particularly exciting. I suspect that many have deliberately skimmed over it without having paid much attention to it at all. It's found at the end of Luke chapter 3, as we have things divided up for us, and it is generally referred to as the genealogy of Jesus. However, before we dive into it, I want us to slightly retrace our steps and consider a matter which we rather too briefly mentioned last time we were together. We had been looking at the work of the prophet John and paying particular attention to his coming as a fulfilment of what had been spoken by the prophet Isaiah and also to the message that he brought to the people, a message of repentance. Luke had told us that the people were in expectation, either as a result of his preaching or maybe in light of the culmination of events in uh, recent decades. They knew the promises of God and they were longing for their fulfillment. So they were questioning in their hearts whether John might actually be the Christ, the Messiah. Well, his answer is rather revealing. He doesn't respond in terms that are particularly in keeping with Jewish messianic expectations, 
but rather in terms of one mightier than he who was to come. Now, if we've read this passage often enough before, we might think little of it. But these words, along with talk of washings with the Holy Spirit and fire, are surprisingly not typically messianic, at least as far as the expectations of God's people were concerned. It's as if John is wanting at this early stage to begin to dispel traditional messianic expectations. Perhaps he's wanting to open their minds to an alternative, more complete understanding of the one who is about to come. For when the Messiah does appear to Israel, he will be quite different from all that they had been anticipating. So he speaks of the one to come who is mightier than he is. Indeed, he's not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandals, let alone be worthy to perform the most menial task of washing his feet. And where his work had been characterised by water, well, that of the one who is to come would be characterised by the Holy Spirit and fire. And then he comes, and we meet him by the Jordan River. Luke tells us that when all the people were immersed and when Jesus also had been immersed and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now, in telling it like this, it seems that Luke is deliberately identifying Jesus along with the people. You know, when all the people were immersed, and when Jesus also had been immersed, there's no other explanation other than that he's being identified along with the people. What they did, he also did. And this identification continues into the next section, the genealogy, and then also with the story of his being tested, but more of that another time. Did you notice that Luke says, and when Jesus also had been immersed and was praying? It suggests a moment of intimacy with the Father associated with him being immersed, and that intimacy is reciprocated with the voice that came from heaven. 
And did you know that Luke mentions prayer more than any of the other gospel writers? Indeed, more than a third of references to prayer in the New Testament scriptures are made by Luke. Now, we've already heard earlier in the book, the whole multitude of the people were praying outside the temple at the hour of incense when Zechariah was on duty. And inside the temple, the angel had said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And then following the birth of Jesus, we briefly met Anna, who did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. And then there was the voice, a voice that came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Is this, I wonder, an identification with the servant of Israel? God had spoken through the prophet Isaiah, saying, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. Hmm. Well, the episode with John comes to something of a, a rather abrupt end, and somewhat remarkably, without any record of any meeting between him and Jesus, or even any mention of John at all at the time of Jesus' immersion. In fact, the closest we read in Luke's Gospel of any meeting between the two, between John and Jesus, is when they were still in their mummies' tummies. Hmm. Well, here, in recording the work of John, he is seen less as an immerser and more as the forerunner, the preparer of the way of Jesus. John is swiftly removed from the scene, and his place in the story is immediately taken over by Jesus. And no sooner does Luke reintroduce Jesus into the story than he takes a break and records his genealogy. So let's take a few moments to listen to it being read for us by David Suchet. And yes, he's the chap who played Poirot. Let's listen. Now Jesus himself was about thirty years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Maphat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, 
the son of Naji, the son of Mayath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simon, the son of Josak, the son of Joda, the son of Joanan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Nera, the son of Melki, the son of Adi, the son of Kosom, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Maphat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Mela, the son of Mena, the son of Matephi, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nachshon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eba, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Aphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Machalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Hmm. Before we say anything particular about this genealogy, I just wanted to say something about Jesus being about 30 years of age when things began. I say when things began because the text itself actually says something like when Jesus himself was beginning. Most versions add a word such as ministry or work or he began to teach, but the idea seems to be more that this was the beginning of all that was to take place. If, as John would write, the word was in the beginning, so Luke asserts that this new beginning, as it were, begins with Jesus. As for him being about 30 years of age, we might conclude nothing particularly conclusive, although this does seem to be the age at which Levites could begin to serve in the temple, and it also appears to be the age at which the prophet Ezekiel begins his work. There are a couple of other observations that have been made, but, um, well, I would say that it's, um, it's pretty young still, isn't it? Well, what about the genealogy itself? It ought to be said that this genealogy recorded by Luke is rather unusual. As a general rule, Jewish genealogies appear in the introduction to a book rather than in the body of a narrative, as it seems to do here. It's almost as if Luke is 
starting his story again. But of course he's already done that when he set things in the context of world history uh, before writing about the work of John. But that part was the introduction. John was the introduction to Jesus, if you like, and now the story of Jesus really begins. But that's not the only thing. The, the, the sequence of this genealogy is also unusual. Other major genealogies recorded in Scripture list names from the past to the present, whereas Luke's genealogy is arranged from the present back to the past. Now, it's true that some Jewish genealogies occasionally follow this order, but those that do are never as long and as comprehensive as this one here in Luke's Gospel. And then Luke mentions no women here, and there are no descriptive or qualifying terms other than what is said of Joseph uh, at the beginning that Jesus was supposed to be the son of Joseph. Well, of course, we know better, as do all who have read so far. We know that the, the real father of Jesus was God himself by the Holy Spirit. And all this leads us then to consider what was the real purpose in Luke recording this genealogy in the first place? Well, one thing seems clear in all of this. Luke is closely identifying Jesus with humanity. As one put it, Jesus, the Son of God, stands in solidarity with humanity. And his being dipped in the Jordan River, along with all of the people, closely aligns him with his contemporaries. This lengthy list of no fewer than 77 human names connects him in time with humanity as a whole. And next, Luke will tell us of his being tempted in the wilderness, yet again showing him to be human, but more of that for another time. For now, it seems clear to me, at any rate, that the purpose of this section is to make it clear that even though he is God's beloved son, he really is one of us. And that's the sound of the mission bell, meaning it's our mission segment of the week and time to consider 
what implications for mission there might be in the passage we're looking into each Monday evening. And remember, when we think of mission, we want always to be thinking first of the mission of God, and then consider our place within his mission. As I know we've said before, it's not the people of God who have a mission, it's the mission of God that has a people. And the passage we've been looking at this evening, one that might frequently be overlooked in light of it being little more than a lengthy list of names, it's a passage which reveals or rather reaffirms an essential truth. And that truth is that we can all share a common ancestor whose name was Adam. Of course, we may not be able to trace every step of our personal ancestries, but each one of us is also a uh, descendant of Adam. The farthest back that I know of my ancestry is a chap called Richard, and there were quite a few Richards and quite a lot of Nicholases, but Richard Boyan, he was born sometime in the first half of the 17th century. There was a Melchizedek Boynes, who I seem to believe was a stone worker, but he's no earlier than the 18th century and uh, certainly shouldn't be confused with the chap who met Abraham. And this is a matter raised by the Apostle Paul when he was in Athens. Oh, not that you shouldn't confuse my ancestor with the chap who met Abraham, but that we all share a common ancestor. When explaining to the Athenians the identity of the unknown God, he declares him to be the one who made the world and everything in it. He says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Luke records Paul saying that he made every nation from one man, from Adam. And I know that this may not be a popular idea today, but popular ideas, however appealing they may be to some, and presumably to many if they're popular, Popular ideas can never erase ancient truths. Paul then went on to explain that we are God's offspring. So we are like God. We have been created in his image, as the Genesis account tells us. And this 
truth is where Luke's genealogy of Jesus takes us. Beginning with Jesus, Luke traces his ancestry all the way back through the centuries, through well-known characters such as David, Judah, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, Noah, all the way back to Adam, who, he says, was the son of God. Isn't that amazing? Not only do we all share the same human ancestor, Adam, but we all share the same origin. We are all of God. Yes, Jesus may well have been the beloved Son of God through miraculous conception, through Mary, and so much more could be said of the sonship of Jesus. Um, but, but, but he was. He was and is the Son of God. But he was also of God through Adam. And that makes him one of us. Do, do you see how this is immensely significant from a missional point of view? Not only are we all in this together, the whole of humanity uh, descended from God himself, but the reason for us having been created is that we might find our way back to him. And the means by which we might find our way back to God is through the one whom he sent into this world, who, being the Son of God through divine intervention, is also, like the rest of us, his Son through Adam. It's really rather profound if we think about the implications of this as far as humanity is concerned. Here in a world today that is full of so much confusion with regards to matters of identity, with so many not knowing who they are or what they are, we're reminded of our origins. We are all, in the most general and universal sense, children of God, created in God's own image. That's who we all are. That's where we've all come from. And it's terribly important to know and to understand that. Unless we understand something of our divine origins, of our true identity, well, we won't be seeking God and feeling our way back to him, and we won't find him. So we should never be afraid to remind others of who we, as people, as humanity, who we really are, that all of us have come from God, that all of us can actually 
eventually trace our lineage, if you like, back through Adam to God, and that it is only through finding him again that we might have peace in this life. So into this world God has sent his beloved Son. He is the one to save us from all our failings. He is the one to show mercy to those who fear God. He is the one to lift up those who are downtrodden and to fill the hungry with good things. He is the one to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. He is the one to rescue the world from all its wickedness. And he is one of us. Well, as we come to the end of this week's edition of In Context, uh, why don't you let me know your thoughts? You can message us on Facebook. Look for the truthfm.uk page. You can tweet us at truthfm.uk or you can email me at Patrick at truthfm.uk. So many ways of getting in touch. And I would love to hear from you. So until next week, let me wish you God's blessings. May he bless us abundantly that we might be a blessing to those around us. Thank you for being with us. Mm-hmm.